This is Inside the Writer's Head with Danny McLean, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties Writer in Residence for 2020. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm your writer in residence for 2021. On this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Today, we welcome Sheila Williams. Sheila is the author of Dancing on the Edge of the Roof, On the Right Side of a Dream, The Shade of My Own Tree, and Girls Most Likely. She is a contributor to an anthology entitled A Letter from My Mother, compiled and edited by her friend, writer Nina Fox. Sheila was born in Columbus, Ohio, and is, as she says, a reformed corporate Borg. In her words, she drank the Kool-Aid, but it made her sick. Sheila loves to read, listen to music, travel, and eat popcorn, preferably served dripping with butter. That sounds good. She lives in Northern Kentucky. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you, Danny. This is a treat for me. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much for um, taking some time to speak. So I'm, I'm really curious about this line in your bio that says that you're a reformed corporate Borg. So before we get into <laughs> your current success in the literary world, tell, tell me a bit about your background in the corporate world and how, how you got from there to, you know, writing novels as you are today. Well, Originally in college, I wanted to be a lawyer, and then I decided, um, after working as a legal secretary during the summers um, to help put myself through college, I tried the certified legal assistant or paralegal route, and I found that to be, especially in a general practice, in in a neighborhood or community practice, it was a lot of fun because there's a lot of variety. You get to do probate and, and, and criminal work and civil work and And it was just a great experience for me. I transitioned into corporate um, work for a corporate law firm and for two corporate um, financial institutions, i.e. banks. And so I was working the corporate job uh, with all of the corporate hierarchies in place. And in most of those situations, I was the only person, many times the only woman in the room, but often and almost always the only person of color in the room. Um, It's a different experience. It can be very regimented. It can be very impersonal. And um, although I learned a lot, it definitely was not for me. Um, But, you know, you have bills to pay and and, um, you've got to keep the lights on and the food in the bellies. So, you know, I continued to do that until um, it became possible for me to, to step away. And so your first book was published in 2002, is that Yes, that's correct. Okay, so how did did that happen? So you have this job, you have this day job that's quite demanding, it sounds like, and all the while you're working on on this book? That's correct. I started that book almost 10 years before it was published. Uh, It was one of those books, it's about a woman who steps away from her life because she's had enough. And the day that I started that book was one of those days for me where I was just fed up and ready to literally pack a bag and just go. And of course I had children and bills and a car payment and all of the things that sort of keep you tethered 
So instead of going myself, I sent my character Juanita on the journey. And I write, you know, I rewrote the book and rewrote it and revised it and submitted it. And it got rejected many times. And then at some point, an editor felt that it spoke to her and it began right there. That was the first published book. And Random House published it, which is a dream. I mean, for a first time novelist to have a book published by Random House, how did that happen? It was it was very interesting. We submitted the agent submitted to many of the big publishers and the small ones and um, submitted it to Shauna Summers at Valentine um, and which is a division was a division of Random House. And the books, the story spoke to her. So no one, Danny, was more surprised than I was. (laughs) Nobody. I, I really was very surprised. But but it happened and um, it was a great opportunity. Incredible. Hmm. And so this book was Dancing on the Edge of the Roof. Is that correct? That's that's correct. Okay. So now, um, you know, it's been made into a film on Netflix starring Alfre Woodard. Yes. Tell me, and this, the movie just came out, was it last year or 2019? It came out in 2019. So how did the book um, come to the attention of the film world? My literary agent had a colleague who was in the film world and he he had done some producing he had a colleague who did some directing and they had initially worked with Alfre Woodard on a television project and they thought that the book would be good as a project for her so they optioned it in the beginning um you know the option was re-upped and then it was dropped and it was re-upped and it's a long process and there were many times when I felt like you know it was not going to happen Um, but at some point, I think just before the recession hit, you know, everyone sort of backed off and said, thanks, but no thanks. And it was that, it was at that point that, um, I literally got a phone call out of the blue from Alfre Woodard. And she said, I see that, you know, I, I understand that the option is about to expire, uh, but I am interested. And she optioned the book at some point and, and, you know, ushered it through the grueling process of, of shopping it and trying to get funding and production and artists and got it made. I, I it, It's a miracle it was made because no one wanted to make that story. I mean, it was not a, the kind of story that, that the powers that be felt was going to be uh, popular. They were wrong about that, but that's what they felt. You know, a middle-aged African-American woman who decides to to go on a great adventure. Nobody was interested in that, but right. it happened. And, and it sounds like, you know, really 30 years in the making, right? Because you worked on the book for 10 years and then 20 yeah. years after its publication, it, it sees, yeah. it comes to the screen. So what was your role in the film adaptation? Did you work on the script? I did not work on the script. Um, I, I was, um, I was sort of, you know, I, I and I was ambivalent about that at first, but, you know, I'd been advised by some fr- colleagues who had projects come to film and they said, look, you know, enjoy the process, learn, meet people um, and it will be worth your time. And remember your home training. Say please, say thank you and don't get in the way. <laughs> Always that. <laughs> Always. And that's <laughs> what I did. Regardless. That's what I did. And um, and the producers were 
by the way, many of the producers, four or five of our producers were women, which was really great, but um, they were fantastic. And I visited the set when they were on location um, in Virginia at some point, and I had a fabulous time, not only um, spending time with the cast and the crew who were so generous, because I had to remember, I was there to have a good time, but they were there to work. Right. And, and I had to be respectful for that, but they were delightful with me. And, um, and they spent some time with me talking about their characters, talking about how they felt about the characters, talking about their lives as, as people who participate in the film process. Um, I had a wonderful time and I learned so much about how a film comes together, but you know, the piece, it's like a mosaic and, and just looking at the process of, you know, how they set up a, a, a shot, how they, um, arrange the scene, um, how they use the extras, how they use the body doubles, you know, they have the doubles for every main character, um, watching the grips carry the big cables around, um, talking with the, um, the vehicle wranglers who were the gentlemen who managed getting the truck for us and then the Jeeps for us and talking with the county sheriffs who held back the traffic when they had to film, you know, on the road, everyone had a part. And it was very interesting, this little tiny book. Um, I can't tell you how many people were on that set. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. It was a, it was a village working on this, this story about this, this woman. So I learned so much. It sounds like it. Did you struggle at all to let go of, um, your baby. I mean, I, you know, I have a book and in some ways that book is, I, I have an actual child, but that book is also my baby. And so to hand it over to someone else and, and let them, you know, um, create their own vision. Um, I would think that that might be a process for the author. Did you, did you struggle with that at all? You know what, Danny, I would have struggled with it if it had been done early in the two thousands, mm-hmm. because then it was, I was so close to it. Right. And it was mine, you know, <laughs> um, it was like that character in uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, it was my, th- you know, it was mine. <laughs> and, um, but at some point I grew up and I realized this book, this story has inspired someone else. And the script is their take on my story. My book will always be what it is. It's time to let go and enjoy what I can out of the process of film. And, and at the point I came to that crossroads and decided to, you know, to grow up about it, I was able to enjoy it. And I was able to learn a lot about storytelling. So, you know, it, it is a process, I think. And you do come to that point where you mature past the uh, desire to control everything. Oh, yes. So you have this experience with the film world and now um, you have worked on an opera as well. Um, The Cincinnati Opera has produced um, Fierce uh, and it was, um, you are the librettist along and worked closely with composer William Minifield. So this seems like a complete, you know, completely different, um, environment in which to be practicing in, in which to practice your skills as a writer. Tell us, first of all, what does a librettist do? And, and what is the work <laughs> for those of us who, you know, who don't, who aren't quite sure, uh, what does a librettist do? And, 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 um, and what did that mean for you working on this with the, with the Cincinnati opera? The librettist 
is the person who provides the words and the story. And that was my job. And it's, you know, you have to, you think of, of an opera in all of these grand terms, you know, Aida and Carmen and all of the great operas, Porgy and Bess, but ultimately it's, it's about telling a story. Only this time the story has music behind it and there are fabulous voices that are singing those words instead of seeing them on the page. And that was my job to, to create the container for the opera, to create the storyline and the language that would be used by the characters, creating the characters along the way and doing it in such a way that the composer, William Menefield, could rep music around and and between the different words and the syllables. Um, it was extraordinary. It's an extraordinary process. I mean, we're not finished yet because it hasn't yet come to the stage, but it will. And um, I learned so much because unlike a novel where I'm writing it and I can micromanage every detail, with an opera, I cannot. I have to write words that William can set to music. If he can't set them to music, then I get a text message that says, these are great, but I can't do anything with them. And so I have to go back, set my ego totally aside. I mean, the, my ego was totally on the shelf somewhere. Mm. Set, my, set that aside and go back to the drawing board, literally, and write, a, get, write it until I get something that speaks to him enough to inspire him to write music that will tell the story and hopefully inspire the soprano or tenor or mezzo or baritone to sing it um, and inspire the listener. Hmm. Tell us the story. What is Fierce about? And, and when can we when can we see it? Fierce is inspired by the lives of young women, uh, teenagers, 18, uh, 13 to 18, um, in Cincinnati, in an urban area. Um, we spent some time with some of the young women artists who are participants in the MRC Music Resource Center programs and wordplay centers uh, programs. And I spent a lot of time listening to them, finding out what, what, what makes them tick, what moves them, their music, what's going on in their world that I might not know about, how to interpret that. And I created a, a story around four young women who are growing up, they come together in a class and they each have some issues that they're dealing with that are very common to, to teenagers, parents, <laughs> teachers, college, no college, school, um, death, life, relationships, um, self-esteem, how to live in the world as a young woman when you're always either too much of something or too little of something. All of those dynamics that 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 accompany a teenage girl as she makes this as she takes the steps towards becoming a woman in our society, and so that is the story. the The four young women are, are um, Morgan and Vesta and Naomi, and and now I can't and um, and I can't think of the other one, but um, they come together and and support each other through this process. And um, the opera will hopefully, COVID permitting, be premiered uh, later this year, hopefully in the fall of 21. That's exciting. That's exciting. And the composer is a Cincinnati native as well, William Minifield. Yes. Right? Yeah. It was so much fun working with William. Um, he's 
it, I, you know, he's enormously talented and I learned so much from him because, you know, collaboration is what you have to do. And so it was interesting to watch him uh, maneuver through the material and give me pointers about what works for him in writing the notes and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, so that's, that's interesting hearing you talk about collaboration and I'm curious in your own practice, when you're, when you're writing, um, when you're writing your fiction, how do you, how do you handle those times when you get stuck? When you feel that, you know, you've been on a roll, you, you, you've had some momentum, you know where your characters are going, um, you understand the story that you're trying to tell, and then suddenly you don't anymore, or you feel like you may have lost your way. Um, how do you, or do you experience, you know, what some might call writer's block? And, and if so, how do you, how do you handle it? Um, I approach it, there are two different ways I approach it because it depends on what the diagnosis is. If I'm truly exhausted, worn out, tired, and just, you know, I can't look at another combination of letters anymore, then I interpret that as, as a situation where like anyone in any career, you're burned out. You're, yeah. you know, you need a break. Uh, you need to refill the well. And, and when that happens, I don't call it writer's block. I don't give it a negative connotation of any kind. I just say, you know what? It, I need to take a break. And that's what I do. Music, walks, um, film, um, in a pre-COVID world, coffee with somebody or dinner or something like that. But it, I need to step away. I, I look at it that way and give myself and give myself permission to take the space I need to refill the well. Because usually what happens is in a couple of days or maybe even it's a matter of hours, it comes back. Mm -hmm. It's just that I was tired. Um, the other scenario is I'm tangled up. And, and believe me, Danny, I've done this many times. You know, you're writing, you're writing, you're writing. And all of a sudden you look at the page and it's like, how did this character get here? I had no intention for this character to be. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're just like this. And of course, the temptation is, you know what? I'm just going to keep writing through it and, and mm. finish it and go back. That I have tried that and I speak from personal experience. It does not work. So I take Margaret Atwood's advice, which is do not sit down in the woods, because if you do, you can forget it. You, you'll be eaten by wild animals. You, you, know, you will never get out of there. Right. You have to stop and take like if you're knitting something, you have to take it apart mm. and see where you went wrong. Where this character ended up that she or he shouldn't have why you are in London when you're supposed to be in Paris. You just have to do it. It is hard work. And, you know, if you're like me, you avoid unpleasant tasks, but there's no, there's nothing for it. You have to do it. And, and I have had to do it many times. I have finished novels where there's a big tangle, you know, it's like hair, you know, if it gets tangled, you, you can, it's got, you got to take it out. You, you, know, so you have to keep, you have to work with it. Yeah. And, um, and I have finished the novel and then there's that big tangle in there and it's got to come out. So I don't push that off anymore. I stop right there and go into that material and see what it is that is not working and work with it until it does work. Because once you clear it out, you know, the road opens up to you yeah. and the story 
returns in in the way that you originally planned for it. Mm. And how do you how you know it, this is really a treat because I'm a journalist and a lot of times people will come to writer in residence workshops or events and they'll ask me questions about fiction writing and I have no idea and I don't pretend to know about how to write fiction. So it's such a treat to have you on the show because I get to ask you get a little more specific about how you do the untangling. Is it just kind of a, is it a, um, do you just sit and think it through? Do you show it to other people? Do you, does that mean you need to do more research? How do you, what is the process of um, kind of sorting out what exactly the problem is? It can be any of those things, although I resist at that point in a novel showing it to someone else, mm -hmm. because this kind of thing usually happens on a first draft. And my, mm -hmm. my thinking about first drafts is I keep them to myself until they are mature enough to stand up <laughs> to any criticism, that. you know, because yeah. if you show it to somebody too early, it's not ready. And you don't want your story taken apart that early in this, in the process, because your first draft is very, very raw and it's not, it isn't finished. It's incomplete. Even when you type the end and you're going to do two and three and four more drafts, it's not ready. So I don't okay. generally don't show it to anybody. Okay. Um, I do sit back and think about it. I do reread until I come to the section, you know, you, you have in your mind this, this notion, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong. Maybe you're not exactly sure where it is. You go back, you read the material until you find it. And then you sit there and you go, okay, I knew when I sent her down this street, that wasn't going to work, mm -hmm. but I sent her down the street anyway. So now she needs to go down this street. I just, you know, I work with it and it's not a pleasant process sometimes. And actually not sometimes, almost all the time. It means you're going to have to throw out a lot of pages or delete a lot of material because it's stuff that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it's hard and it hurts, yeah. <laughs> but, but you do it. Um, and then when I do that, once I finish that first draft or that second draft, but that tangle is out, if I give it to someone to read, to give me a, you know, just sort of a baseline opinion, they won't even mention that right. place. You know, I'm, I'm just waiting for them to say, well, no, on page 25, that's it. Nope. Because that was for you. That was between you and the page. Yeah. The, the reader won't even see it. Feel that's it. That's right. Hear, yeah, they, they don't even see the seams, right? No, like they can't no. even tell that there was once something there no, that, that needed no. to be worked through. Mm -hmm. no. That skill, yeah, that's and, real and skill. that's and and so you just it is hard work and it's very hard on your ego, <laughs> but you have to do it. You just have to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, when we spoke last week, you told me a bit about your book that's coming out next year and how you prepared to write it. Can you tell us about the book and explain the role that research and investigation play in your fiction writing? I sure can, because I'm getting ready to talk to somebody about it um, on another <laughs> front. Um, it's called Things Past Telling. And the proposed publication date at this point is now June of 2022. Um, it will come out from Amistad HarperCollins. And this is my homage to the women on my family tree. I am. I admit to being a family history genealogy geek. Mm -hmm. I just love, there's nothing I like, like the count likes to count on, on Sesame Street. <laughs> I, I like to build family trees. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, but one of the things you find out, of course, is that for women, it can be kind of tricky. You know, they are the daughter of 
wife of, mother mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. And if you're back in the 18th and early and 19th century, sometimes they're all named Mary and Anne and Elizabeth, and it just makes you crazy. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you go with oral history where people say, well, you know, my father's grandmother did this or that. And there are these wonderful stories, but the names aren't there. Mm. And so I wanted to give special shout out in the form of a book to these women because their stories are amazing. And of course, the research involved, you know, digging into those census records and, and property records and deeds and, and death certificates and birth records and old Bibles and all of that kind of stuff. Digging into family history, digging into photographs, um, remembering conversations with great aunts and grandmothers and great grandmothers and my father and my mother, etc., and putting that in the historical context of the times. Um, so things past telling was was is the combination of maybe 10 women rolled into the life of one woman, but the women and people that she meets along her journey from 1744 to 1870 um, it includes the lives of many of my um, grandmothers and, and aunts and others over the years, over that time period. And um, there was a lot of research. There was a lot of thought that went into it. And I wanted to get it. I wanted to get it right because these women survived a whole lot so that I could just be sitting here. And 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 they deserve um, they deserve a platinum medal for some of the some of the uh, times that they lived through. Mm -hmm. I I appreciated um, what you shared about. midwifery, what you learned about the role of midwives. Yes. Yeah. If you could speak a a bit about that, because, uh, you know, as you know, I write, I have written quite a bit about um, birth and pregnancy. And it was interesting what you were sharing about, um, yeah, the role that the, that the midwife has played throughout history. um, I had no idea. For black women. Yes. And I had no idea. You know, I, I knew that my great, two times great grandmother um, Julia Hearn Swanson was a midwife. I was told this all the time. You know, it just went in one ear and out the other. When I started really doing research on the book and digging into documents, and this isn't all printed places because midwifery is like, what is it the, the old people would say? That's women's business. And, mm-hmm. and so women kept that, you know, it was passed mother to daughter to, you know. And I started getting into this and I thought, oh my God, these women were the ones who delivered the babies, often in the slave quarters and sometimes in the property owner's home as well. Mm-hmm. They were protective of the delivering mother, very protective. They were the ones who, who wanted to make sure that the baby was healthy and bonded with his or her mother. Sometimes they had to stand between that mother and the property owner who wanted her in the back in the field or back in the smokehouse or wherever, uh, three hours after giving birth. And this is the woman who would stand up and say, no, Sally needs a couple more days um, or a week or whatever she could negotiate um, to keep that family and that mother and child together and safe. I I was really... I was really awestruck when I started getting into the documents and much of it is oral because they were, you know, hesitant to write any of it down. It was transmitted orally, but I was really um, taken aback and just so impressed 
um, at the strength of these women. Many of them had the independence. They had a past that allowed them to go from farm to farm because when babies come, they come, you know. And if you're working on this farm and a baby comes at 3 a.m., then you may be the woman who has to go out and deliver that baby. And you may run up against some people who don't think that you need to be there. And, you know, there were all of these dangers. This was not always easy work. Um, they were, you know, some people thought they were witches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. um, they often ran afoul of, of sometimes of Christian traditions within their own communities because people were a little, you know, what kind of power does she have? What is in that tea that she's making? You know, mm-hmm. all of those kinds of challenges. And these women were fierce when it came to protecting their craft and the mothers and babies that they served. So when I finished doing, you know, the research and started writing my great great grandmother, I was, I, I was really, um, it was an humbling experience because I realized then, you know, when you say a person is a midwife back in 1860, there's a lot going on there, right. and if that woman is is African American um, and a woman of color, there's a whole lot going on there mm-hmm. that she's mm-hmm. dealing with. A whole lot of power held in that role. There is. And there's a lot, you know, discretion is her middle name. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the other problem, of course, for other people from the outside looking in. You know, the woman who delivers the babies knows a whole lot. Whether anyone tells her or not, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's the nature of that business. And so, you know, there were concerns about that for some other people as well. And these women learned to be careful and to be discreet. It was part of their craft. Mm. Oh, tell us again the name of that novel and when we can expect it, because now I just can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to get my hands on it. <laughs> um, it's called Things Past Telling, and it'll be released next June 2022 from HarperCollins. Amistad HarperCollins. Amistad yeah. HarperCollins. Okay. Yeah. Um, so your first book came out in 2002, and the book that you've been talking about comes out next year, 20 years later, right? 20 years mm-hmm. after that, your first uh, published novel. And in this past year, we've seen a reckoning in publishing around um, issues of race and white supremacy and power. How has your experience of the publishing world changed in the past 20 years? I, I note that you just stressed oh, it's Amistad, like it's this particular, yes. <laughs> this particular <laughs> yep. you know, uh, part of the publishing industry. What, what have you seen? What's changed in these past 20 years in publishing? Um, when I first was, was approached to uh, and was interested in, in submitting my work, no one was interested in, in taking it or reading it. You know, I got some very interesting responses. If you can make all your characters white, I might be able to take your story. If you, can. <laughs> um, I had one editor tell me that she was going to do me a favor by explaining to me that um, that that black people did not buy books, and and that other readers would not buy books that were written by black authors with black stories. Now, this is twenty some years ago, although I suspect. That comment could have come not too long ago as well. But I did have an editor tell me that. And she felt that she was doing me a great favor by explaining that to me. Well, only thing it did was make me not confused in a serious way, but in a very facetious way. Because, you know, as she's explaining this to me on the telephone, I'm looking around at my house. At your bookshelf, right? It's ridiculously <laughs> full of books. It's, it's embarrassingly full of books. And she's telling me we don't buy books. So I was like, okay. Right. Um, I understood 
you know, in recent times, they've quantified that and, and said that, you know, it's only about 5% of all books published, you know, by, by African-American authors, which is beyond appalling, um, and other authors um, that, that are not um, what they would consider a traditional author. So it's been interesting, you know, because there have been times when, when that's changed a little bit and you think, oh, great, you know, here comes Walter Mosley with another one. And here's oh, Terry McMillan and, and Toni Morrison is brought on, you know, and you think, okay, things are, you know, the wheels turning. Um, but then, you know, it turns only so far. So this year has been very interesting because you've seen um, more editors who are people of color, more people participating in the business who are people of color. Um, I had a phenomenal marketing team of young women, many of which were, you know, women of color, you know, participating on the marketing team for my book. Um, that's been lovely to see. In addition to seeing more authors um, from a variety of spheres and, and just broadening that space of storytelling, you know, including all of these different kinds of stories and, and enriching all of us in the process, mm-hmm. um, which means I get to buy more books. That's right. That's <laughs> which right. I don't, don't need any more books. <laughs> we always need more books. <laughs> always. Yeah. What are you reading right now? Ah, would ask. Well, <laughs> um, a friend of mine told me I'm a history geek. Black Tudors, huh. about the participation of um, Black people during the Tudor era in the UK. I haven't started it yet, but it was highly recommended. Um, Interesting. I just started, this is the autobiography oh, yeah. of Cicely Tyson. Miss um, Tyson was a, I, I was a big fan. So yeah. I'm very anxious to for I've listeners. This. Yeah, yeah, Sheila and I are, are on a Zoom call, so I get to actually see her. I have the pleasure of seeing her, and she just held up um, Cicely Tyson's autobiography, and it has that gorgeous yes um, profile, right headshot of Cicely Tyson with the bald head, looking just yes. stunning. Yes, so that's and why then, I'm doing an eye. Yeah, and then actually the book that that is nourishing my my um, my soul these days is is the book written of poetry by our mm. current poet laureate, um, An American Sunrise by Joe Harjo, um, who is the first Native American woman person to become the US poet laureate. And her work is extraordinary. So. That's right. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So for listeners who are looking for uh, you know, what to, what to check out from the library next. Uh, those are some good recommendations. How can people follow your work, Sheila? I do have a website, mm-hmm. SheilaJWilliams.com. Um, I am also on Facebook, which is Sheila J. Williams author. And I'm miserable at social media, so you will have to be patient. <laughs> and I'm on Instagram at Dancing on Edge too. And that's the number two. The number two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I recently started following you on Instagram. You're not awful on social media at all. (laughs) Well, I'm in a history mode right now. So you will see a lot of these vintage photos that I'm posting because I'm I'm really um, wanting to get some of that stuff out there. It's so interesting and and it's so um, important. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me about um, your process, about what's inspiring you, about your your willingness to um, write in all of these different contexts. I think that's one of the things that strikes me most about your work is you, um, you know, oh, let me be a librettist. Like, let, let me see what it means to, to write for opera and, you know, let, let me be on a film set. And um, I think that that in some ways, so many of us who write and who, who have the, the privilege of writing for a living, that's kind of the dream is to not only work in one field, but to branch out and have all of these different opportunities. So congratulations and thank you for sharing a bit about your path with us. Danny, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure. Oh, good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Keep joining us for in-depth conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Thanks for joining us. And please remember to subscribe to Inside the Writer's Head wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See you next time. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Danny at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting Cincinnati Library org slash writer in residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you. Thank you.